This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Deidre Tyler, host today. Today, we'll be talking with Catherine N. Weininger, author of Gendering the GOP, Intra-Party Politics, and the Republican Women's Representation in Congress. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Great. I wonder if you could start the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, So I actually got my PhD in political science from uh, the Women in Politics program at Rutgers University. Uh, But before then, I went to college at the University of San Diego. Uh, And during my college career, I saw Sarah Palin's vice presidential nomination. I saw the rise of the Tea Party. So I actually became really interested in understanding the politics of conservative women uh, at that time. Um, And so I actually went into graduate school curious about conservative women activists specifically and political action committees, but then sort of slowly transitioned into focusing on Republican women in Congress. Um, And, you know, part of that transition was due to the fact that I noticed Republican women lawmakers really actively challenging the you know, war on women rhetoric that was used in the 2012 election and speaking on behalf of women from this really conservative standpoint. So it was really, I think, the political environment that inspired this project. Uh, I wanted to understand how Republican women navigated an increasingly gendered and polarized political landscape within a party that really rejects, you know, what it considers to be identity politics. Now, you talk about the budget shutdown in 2011, and that told us something about women and the GOP. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I actually opened my book with a scene from 2011. Uh, This was during which the federal government actually narrowly avoided a government shutdown. Um, You know, at that time, there were really some strong disagreements between House Republicans and Senate Democrats about the federal budget. 
And one of those disagreements was the defunding of Planned Parenthood. Uh, House Republicans wanted to eliminate federal funding for Planned Parenthood. So on April 8th, 2011, is where my book starts, um, the Democratic women of the Senate held a press conference blaming House Republicans for stalling budget negotiations over this Planned Parenthood provision. Um, and then a few hours later, the Republican women in the House held their own press conference. And um, I start this book here because this is where we see Republican women coming together to speak collectively as Republican women. Um, so actually, Representative Mary Bono said, I think this is the first time we've all been together like this as a group. Um, so there was this acknowledgement um, on stage that uh, even among the women themselves, that there was something valuable to working not just as women or as Republicans, but specifically as Republican women. From your study of women GOP congresswomen, what have you found about the numbers? Have they increased, decreased? What's going on in your study? Yeah, so they have increased since I've conducted the study. Um, they really hit a low point following the 2018 midterms. Their numbers dropped from 23 to just 13 in the House. Uh, the Then the 2020 was the 2020 election was really a record-breaking year. Um, a lot of people called it, you know, the year of the Republican woman. They entered the 117th Congress with 31 women, and I think it actually has increased to 33. Um, and then this election, right, we we're just off the heels of a of a new midterm election, this election, they're on track to maintain those numbers. So we are seeing some improvement over time. Um, that said, uh, in comparison to Democratic women, the numbers are still really low. And this has been a really consistent trend over time. So this year, it looks like uh, 90 Democratic women have run their races, so won their races so far. Um, and they'll make up a little over 40% of their caucus next year in the House. Um, and that's compared to Republican women who will only make up about 15% of their caucus. So while the numbers of Republican women are doing better, this sort of partisan gap remains, and it's remained pretty consistent over time. And I argue that it's likely to continue to remain until Republican, the Republican Party makes some significant changes to increase those numbers. Well, tell us about the Republican women GOP uh, definition of women's issues. Yeah, so I think this was something that I was really interested in when I first started the book. Um, I think that on the surface, a lot of Republican women have been hesitant to describe certain issues as quote-unquote women's issues. Um, one thing that we hear a lot is all issues are women's issues, right? So one goal of the project was to understand not just how Republican women think about women's issues, but how they actually invoke women in different policy contexts. Right? So that could give me a better sense of, well, 
you say all issues are women's issues, but how are you really talking about women and when are you talking about women? So I conducted a content analysis of House floor speeches to understand when Republican women speak um, on behalf of women and how they speak as women. So in other words, like when are they claiming to represent women, right? What, when are they claiming that their identity as a woman is important for understanding the issue at hand? Um, and I find that, you know, with few, with a few exceptions, the, the issues that Republican women tend to talk about most often when they're talking about women do tend to be the issues that, you know, scholars have typically thought of as women's issues. So things like abortion, welfare, health, violence against women, those types of issues. Um, the interesting finding, I think, is that Republican women have framed these issues over time um, differently um, as we have seen an increase in polarization and an increase in conservative women elected to Congress. So I'm, I'm happy to talk more about that. Um, so the, the framing in issues has changed over time. I also have seen a, a broader range of issues being discussed in terms of gender. So I've seen uh, increasingly Republican women talking about issues like immigration, gun rights, national security, taxes, et cetera. Um, but they still make up, you know, smaller portions of these gendered speeches overall. How did you analyze this through a gender lens? Yeah, so one thing I wanted to understand, sort of, I guess, like backing up, right, in terms of the overarching goal of the project. So I wanted to understand how institutional changes in Congress have affected Republican women's experiences in the in the conference. Um, so since the 1990s, just to give you a sense of like what the political context is. Since the 1990s, we've seen an increasing ideological divide between Democratic and Republican women. This is true with Democrats and Republicans in general, right? So rep women really haven't been an exception to increasing polarization. Um, the second change that we've seen is um, that we've seen an increasingly, we've seen increasingly conservative women elected to Congress. Uh, Republican women are more ideologically cohesive, so similar to one another, and they're no longer more moderate than men in their party, which was not always true. They used to be more moderate than the men, uh, but they're not anymore. Uh, third, we have seen an increase in party competition, meaning that Republicans and Democrats both have a pretty good chance of winning control of the government in any given election. Um, and so what that has meant is that there's been a lot more focus today on messaging in Congress than there has been in the past. And then finally, we've seen an increasingly gendered political landscape, right? So we've really seen these big institutional changes in Congress and specifically among Republican women in the House. And so I was curious to understand the gender dynamics of the conference. So that's really how I'm trying to, I'm trying to analyze these institutional changes through a gender lens. What are the gender dynamics in the conference? How have those conference, how have those dynamics changed over time, right? So questions like, what is the leader, the relationship? between 
women and male party leaders? What leadership positions do Republican women have, if any? Uh, are women pushing party leadership to support women in any way, et cetera? Um, right? And then, of course, how has this changed over time? So that's sort of my, my attempt to look at these changes and look at Congress and the Republican conference specifically through this gender lens. In one part of your book, you started out with 1992, the year of the woman. What were some of the concerning trends at that time? Yeah, so 1992 was the year of the woman. Uh, so that means we saw a record number of women elected to Congress. Uh, but most of those women were Democratic women. So this is very similar to the 2018 election, right, where we talked about this year of the woman. It's a record-breaking year for women. Uh, but really, those trends uh, were seen specifically on the Democratic side of the aisle. So this was true in 1992 as well. Um, in 1994, we saw a smaller increase in Republican women elected. Uh, so some of of some folks called that the year of the Republican woman. Um, we also saw that a lot of those Republican women tended to be more conservative. So that was sort of what was going on 1992, 1994. Um, and since then, what we've seen is that the numbers of Democratic women have pretty steadily increased over time. And Republican women's numbers have remained relatively stagnant. So not much changes since since the 1990s. Now, you talk about rhetoric. Tell us about some of the floor speeches and gender. Yeah, so um, so one thing that I, I focus on is uh, what has been called, what Colleen Shogun calls uh, woman-invoked rhetoric. Um, and so that is really how I start the book, is with this content analysis of floor speeches uh, given by House Republican women. I wanted to understand how they were invoking women in their speeches. So are you speaking on, are they speaking on behalf of women? Right? Are they claiming to represent women and how are they claiming to represent women? And then also, are they speaking about themselves as women? Are they acknowledging that their identity as a woman or as a mother or a grandmother, is that important to understanding the issue that they're talking about? So I look, I basically looked at all of House Republican women's floor speeches that uh, engaged in that type of woman-invoked rhetoric, um, and I analyzed sort of changes um, over time. One very interesting nugget uh, you talk about in the book is the fact that Republican women are overrepresented in the Congress conference leadership positions. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the Republican conference is really the messaging vehicle for the party. It's where party leaders develop and disseminate what they believe are effective messages. And right? so uh, the chair of the Republican conference is the third highest position, depending on who's in the majority. So now in the, the next Congress, it will be the fourth highest position in the party, right? So above that is Speaker of the House, Majority Leader, and Majority Whip. Um, and so far, no Republican woman has been able to climb higher than conference chair. 
Uh, but women have been relatively overrepresented in conference leadership positions. Um, not so much anymore, but in the 113th and 114th Congresses, uh, which is the which are two of the Congresses that I study. Um, so this was like 2013. I, I talk in Congresses, but because I'm a, a congressional scholar. But so this is like 2013 uh, to 2017. Um, you know, in in these Congresses, women held the positions of chair, vice chair, and secretary, as well as the freshman and sophomore representatives, which is a huge proportion uh, of the conference compared to, you know, their overall numbers in Congress. But even if we look just at the top leaders, so um, a woman has been either chair or vice chair of the conference since 1995 and has actually chaired the conference every year since 2013. And actually, Elise Stefanik has just been reelected to the position for the next Congress. So what we're really seeing is women consistently since the 1990s and even more so since 2013, we've really seen women consistently holding these top messaging positions in the party. Now, have the claims that Republican women make, have they changed over time? Yeah. So in the book, I conduct these in-depth analyses of changes in woman-invoked rhetoric. Um, Generally speaking, what I found is that since the 1990s, Republican women have increasingly engaged in gendered rhetoric that aligns with their party's ideological positions and electoral goals. Um, so this is actually what I call partisan woman-invoked rhetoric. So in the 1990s, uh, the Republican women who were speaking as and on behalf of women uh, have tended to be more moderate members. Um, so they were actually in the 1990s, a lot of the women who were engaging in this gendered rhetoric, they were actually challenging their party stances in many ways, especially on issues um, like abortion. Um, but what we are seeing is that's really no longer the case. Um, I actually have a, a couple of, of examples, right? So we see, for instance, um, Marge Rakama, a representative from New Jersey, pretty moderate in the 1990s, saying that it's absolutely vital to protect a woman's ability to exercise her constitutional right to an abortion. It's something that we would never hear a Republican woman in Congress say today, right? Um, and so... Today, what we're seeing is rhetoric that is much more aligned with the ideolo ideology of the party. So we're seeing um, very, you know, anti-abortion rhetoric, um, but we're also seeing um, we're also seeing more partisan rhetoric. And what I mean by that is that Republican women have sort of come to acknowledge that their position as women in the party can be beneficial to the party as a whole. So we see, for instance, Representative Diane Black saying, quote, for all the talk about the supposed war on women, it's Obamacare that's waging a war against female workers. Right? So it's a it's an attempt to defend 
the party against gendered attacks on the party and trying to flip that script, right, and say, actually, it's the Democrats who are engaging in this war on women. Um, so what I find, again, is that the rhetoric has changed in terms of ideology, but it's also changed in terms of partisanship. It is much more partisan in nature. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tell us about your methodology and your multi-method approach in this book. Yeah, so I compared the rhetoric and the experiences of Republican women in uh, two congressional eras, which I can talk a little bit more about. But so this was the 103rd and 104th Congresses, which is 1993 to 1997. So this is directly following the year of the woman. Um, and then that compared to 20 years later uh, in the 113th and 114th Congresses, which is to, uh, 2013 to 2017. Um, and I conducted, as I, you know, as I have discussed a little bit, I conducted content analyses of House floor speeches to examine how woman-invoked rhetoric has changed over time. So this was sort of a, a, a quantitative analysis, trying to understand uh, numeric changes over time, as well as uh, more in-depth qualitative analyses of uh, the content of these speeches and how that has changed over time. Uh, I And then I also uh, used uh, interviews with women members. Uh, these interviews were conducted by the Center for American Women in Politics. Um, they had really great uh, uh, interviews that were conducted um, in these Congresses in the 1990s. Uh, I was about five years old when those interviews were conducted, so I didn't actually conduct those interviews. But um, I did conduct some of the interviews uh, in the 114th Congress in 2015 and 2016. Um, so I was able to conduct, I believe, about 24 of those interviews. Um, so, uh, so those were the, the the methods that I, you know, that the 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 methods that I used. I also, you know, looked at um, used, you know, the National Archives and um, and analyses of news media to really sort of understand uh, the context in which Republican women were engaging in this rhetoric and were navigating these experiences at the time. Why did you select those two periods? A few different reasons. So the first is that the political environment during those time periods were pretty similar. Uh, so in both eras, there was a Democratic president at the time, and gender was actually pretty salient in both of these uh, in both of these um, time periods. Uh, so this was, you know, immediately following the 1992 year of the woman and immediately following the 2012 election where we saw war on women rhetoric being used. 
The second reason is that comparing these time periods helped me better understand the effects of polarization and party competition. So Republican women in the later Congresses were much more ideologically cohesive and in line with their parties. Um, in the early 1990s, we saw a lot of uh, Republican women who were more moderate. So uh, Republican women were actually, statistically speaking, significantly more moderate than the men in their party. That's no longer the case, so I wanted to see the, the effects that that has had. Uh, they're also, they were also at the time less uh, ideologically cohesive. So even in the night since even after the 1994 election, where we saw more conservative women elected, there were these ideological tensions between the women at the time. So, um, you know, I, I wanted to sort of see the effects of, of those ideological changes. Uh, also, I was curious about the effects of par increasing party competition. So 1994 was the election where we saw Republicans gain control of the House of Representatives after 40 years in the minority. Um, and since then, we have seen um, pretty competitive election. So the, house, the control of the House has has flipped back and forth um, since then um, at you know pretty similar rates. Um, so comparing these periods really helped me to understand again the ideological shift, the uh, polarization as well as party competition. Um, and then third, which I think is also important, <laughs> is that I had data for these congresses, right? And specifically, we had interview data that we could really use to compare changes in women's experiences across these time periods. Uh, the Center for American Women in Politics conducted. Um, in-depth, semi-structured interviews in uh, the early 1990s, um, as well as in uh, 2015 and 2016. Um, and so those were really, really helpful in helping me to understand uh, women's experiences in the institution. The second part of your book, you talk about the Republican Congresswomen and how they navigated politics. Tell us about the Congressional Caucus for Women issues and the RWPC. Yeah, the Congressional Caucus for Women's Issues is the bipartisan women's caucus. Uh, it still exists. It still has bipartisan leadership and membership. But what I show in the book is that throughout its history, there has been some partisan tension. So at one point in the 103rd Congress, uh, this was in the 1990s, the women's caucus decided that it was going to put abortion back on the table as an issue that it would work on collectively. Prior to that, they had decided, you know what, abortion is too contentious. We're not going to address it. It's not going to be on the table. Um, so this change really fractured the caucus, causing a lot of Republican women, even the ones who were pro-choice, to not participate in the caucus because it left out a lot of, um, of these more anti-abortion Republican women. Um, in the 104th Congress, Republican women found themselves in the majority, 
And not only that, but Speaker Newt Gingrich at the time was really strategic about strengthening party loyalty among Republican women. Uh, He would actually meet with the women as a group. He helped them get onto important committees. And in this way, we saw the incentive for joining the Bipartisan Women's Caucus actually lessen over time, right? A lot of Republican women joined the the Women's Caucus because they could get a sense of, you know, what was Democratic Party leadership doing? What were they working on? But now that, you know, in following 1994, they were in the majority, they had direct access to the speaker. So that incentive has had lessened, and we see an increase in, in, in party loyalty among Republican women. And then as we get into the more recent Congresses, right, 2013 um, to 2017, we're seeing not only a less uh, powerful bipartisan women's caucus, but we're also seeing the creation of explicitly partisan women's caucuses. So House, uh, the House Democratic women actually have formed their own caucus. It's, it was called the Democratic Women's Working Group. It's now called the Democratic Women's Caucus. It still exists. Um, and the Republican women formed their own group. It was called the Republican Women's Policy Committee which lasted from 2012 to 2016 uh, before it, you know, before it disbanded. So I think this shows the partisan nature of women's issues in Congress, right? That yes, there are some places where women can still work together, but women also very much view themselves at the intersection of their partisan and gender identities are, and are working in those ways. You conducted three case studies of female Republican conference leaders. Um, What did you find concerning their pathways to leadership? Yeah, so I conducted uh, case studies of uh, Representative Susan Molinari, Jennifer Dunn, and Kathy McMorris-Rogers. So Susan Molinari and Jennifer Dunn were conference vice chairs in the 104th and 105th Congresses. And Kathy McMorris-Rogers was conference chair in the 113th and 114th Congresses. So I really wanted to know what were their experiences like um, and what can that tell us about Republican women's opportunities in the party? Um, I think the main finding here is really that Kathy McMorris Rogers, uh, who has, uh, you know, is, is no longer chair of the conference, but was chair of the conference at the time. She, you know, was really able to leverage her position as chair in a way that provided opportunities to other women in the party. So what I find is that, um, Each of these women, and in particular, Jennifer Dunn and Kathy McMorris Rogers, in terms of their pathway to leadership, um, they were really encouraged by uh, party leaders. So Jennifer Dunn was really encouraged to run for vice chair of the conference by Speaker Newt Gingrich at the time. Uh, And Kathy McMorris Rogers was really encouraged to run for conference chair by John Boehner. And uh, what I find is that, you know, they were sort of both 
Kathy, uh, Jennifer Dunn being vice chair and Kathy McMorris Rogers being chair, the fact that they had sort of different positions meant that Kathy McMorris Rogers was able to um, implement more of her um, more of her goals. Right, both of their goals were really to try to soften the message of their party. They were trying to appeal to women voters. In both of these eras, the Republican Party was sort of attempting to close the gender gap in voting. They wanted to win over more uh, uh, women voters, and. Kathy McMorris Rogers and Jennifer Dunn both had this strategy of we need to gender our messages. We need to show that women really care about, you know, Republican issues and that Republicans care about women's issues. Um, and Kathy McMorris Rogers, I think, was more successful Uh partly because she was chair and was able to actually implement this, right? Jennifer Dunn actually had some pushback from the conference chair at the time, who was actually John Boehner, uh, funny enough. And, um, and so, so there was that. And then the second thing, the second reason Kathy McMorris Rogers was more successful is because there was this change in the women in Congress at the time. So the Republican women were more ideologically cohesive, right? There was this sort of what I call a partisan gender identity forming, right? Where Republican women wanted to work together as Republican women. They have formed the Republican Women's Policy Committee. So Kathy McMorris Rogers was able to really mentor women coming into the party at the time. Elise Stefanik was definitely one of Kathy McMorris Rogers' mentees. Um, and now she's a very significant figure in, in getting more Republican women elected. Um, and then she was also able to leverage the Republican Women's Policy Committee to sort of get more women um, out in front of cameras and actually talking about um, issues as Republican women. So that's sort of the, the, you know, the one of the main points of these case studies was to really understand how um, conference positions have changed over time and how women in these positions um, have worked to, um, you know, bring make women more visible in the party. Chapter four, can you tell us something about the collective action of the Republican women? Yeah, so I find that increasing polarization and competition, right, um, while I think there are obviously many downsides to that, <laughs> Um, these have actually helped to create opportunities for collective action among Republican women. In recent years, we've seen Republican women work together uh, as a group to support one another within the institution and recruit and inspire more women to run for office. Um, because Republican women, as I was saying, are more ideologically, uh, are, are, I mean, less ideologically diverse, and they're more in line with their party than they were in the 1990s, they've actually been able to work together to assert themselves within the party and to remind male party leaders that women's representation can benefit the party as a whole, right? So, um, 
we did see, again, for example, the creation of the Republican Women's Policy Committee, um, which was created when Republican women decided to mobilize around their identity as Republican women. Right? So this is actually what I call a partisan gender identity that, you know, where where women are working not just as partisans and not just as women, but at the intersection of these identities. Um, and the Republican Women's Policy Committee was really a way to bring Republican women together as a force to promote and empower one another and also to push male party leaders to support women's voices and presence in the party. So I really think of the creation of this caucus as a form of collective action. And this is something that comes from Anna Mahoney's work, looking at the development of women's caucuses in state legislators, right? So I borrow this idea that forming caucuses is a form of collective action in these institutions. Um, and I, I, I show that uh, how Republican women have sort of been able to do this. Um, they uh, had critical actors um, um, people like um, Representative, at the time, Representative Marsha Blackburn um, and Representative Mary Bono, who were, you know, sort of uh, a little bit different ideologically. They were both able to really mobilize women to form this caucus. Um, and uh, they were able to, again, convince male party leaders that the caucus was an important uh, was important to form right and this mobilization again was um uh you know it it was really able to occur uh it was able to occur because of those critical actors as well as critical actors like kathy mcmorris rogers who was conference chair at the time and she really worked to mentor incoming women. She really worked to amplify women's voices. Um, and so that was, you know, that was, I think, and these critical actors, I think, are really um, key to the collective action uh, among Republican women that, that we've been seeing. Well, in the last chapter, you entitle it Gendering the GOP. What were you basically saying there? Yeah, I'm, I think I was saying that I was saying a couple of different things, right? So I think the first thing that I was saying, the first thing is is really a message to scholars and political scientists um, that we really need to begin to look at party politics through a gender lens, right? That gender dynamics exist in the Democratic Party, they exist in the Republican Party, uh, and really trying to understand those dynamics on a more in-depth level is going to help us understand uh, more broadly women's representation within these parties and within Congress more generally. Uh, the second you know, the second thing uh, that I meant by gendering the GOP is that I think the concept of gender is something that both party leaders and in particular the women in the party are really focused on. We tend to think of uh, Republicans as sort of gender blind actors. We tend to think that, you know, Republican women don't actually act on their gender. Um, but what I find is that Republican women are actually very strategic in the way that they 
engage their gender. And they do so in a way that aligns with their party's overarching goals and their overarching goals within the party. And so uh, that was sort of, you know, the I think the meaning behind gendering the GOP, right? That we need to make gender, gender visible as scholars in the parties. And then second, that there is this sort of phenomenon that is happening in the Republican Party specifically, where we're seeing women actively engaging their gender. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on? Yeah, absolutely. So I am working on a new book project and still at the very beginning stages of my new book project. Um, It's actually on progressive organizing in Congress. Uh, So you know, what we have seen in recent years, especially since 2018, has been the rise of social movements, right? Feminist movements, racial justice movements, labor movements, um, you know, environmental rights. Uh, And so we've seen that. And we've also seen at the same time, increasing diversity in Congress in terms of specifically women of color being elected, progressive women of color. We're seeing people with activist backgrounds, so people who actually are coming from these movements into the institution. Uh, And so my next project is really focused on progressive organizing and trying to understand the connections between these social movements and progressives in Congress and whether or not um, people's... uh, backgrounds and their identities um, shape the way they work to uh, enact these progressive goals. So that's my next project, sort of going over to the other side of the aisle. Well, we'll be looking forward to your next book. Again, we've been talking with Katherine Weiniger, the author of Gendering the GOP, Intra-Party Politics and Republican Women's representation in Congress. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me.